Hey, we are, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray us in here, and we're going to go ahead and, and dive in. Our wonderful pianist, uh, Susan Bell, is stuck in some traffic, and, uh, but in, in God's wonderful providence, um, we have a whole, normally we have a whole lot to cover tonight, we have a whole, whole lot to cover, and I'm going to have to talk half speed because it's, some of it's kind of dense. So we're just going to pray and get, dive into what God's got for us tonight. And take use of a couple extra minutes. So if y'all pray with me, church family, uh, let's go before the Lord. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much. I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters in this room, the joy it is to see their faces. Um, God, thank you for the richness of the love you've given us. Uh, Jesus, that you, you have loved us with, thank you for how that transforms us and the love that you allow us to exhibit for one another. And Lord, we continually ask, Holy Spirit, that you would produce your unity your fellowship, God. It's clear in Scripture, we don't produce unity and fellowship. We can, we can uh, engage in fellowship and we can fight to preserve unity, but we don't actually produce those. Holy Spirit, you produce those. And you produce those as we, your people, walk by you and in you and humbly submit to you. So Lord, may you unify us around you, around your will, around your purposes. We are not here as a church to exist as a country club for ourselves. We are here to be a family of ambassadors who proclaim your glory and, and greatness and gospel to the world and who has a foretaste of heaven, love and take care and serve one another as unto you. So Jesus, you're present tonight. May we not take any of this lightly or routine. Open our eyes, help us see you and grasp you, and Lord, may we leave with a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's to you we look, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray, amen. Okay, let me give you some provisos for tonight. I think... We will be able to make it through what I've got tonight by, by the time, by five till. You're going to laugh. Here's, here's what I'm saying, though. If at five till, whatever section I'm in, because of the nature of what we're going to look at tonight, I'm not going to end it pretty. I'm just going to end whatever section we're in, and we're going to push pause like you would in a class at college or seminary, and we're going to come back next week and finish it up, all right? So I uh, try to always tie every night in a bow. If Depending on where we're at tonight, there may be no bow. Just a poorly wrapped Christmas present uh, if it's my wrapping. So that's what we're going to do because I, I don't want to speed fast and leave you, uh, leave you confused. What, what we're going to do tonight, last week we, we were jumping back into our developing biblical worldview categories. And we're in this category of ethics, at the core of ethics. I mean, from a, from a technical standpoint, ethics being that philosophical study of how we know right from wrong. What is the nature of right from wrong? Is it relative? Is it absolute? Uh, is, is it able to be understood? What is, it, what is the foundation for it? We're talking about ethics, which is the study of morality, and as, as we looked at that last week, what we ultimately came to is as you walk through Scripture, it is undeniably clear 
in Scripture that the basis for right or wrong, the basis for good or bad, is not an arbitrary standard. It's not some standard that God adheres to. It is God Himself. He is good. He is the standard of right or wrong. He is the... Therefore, what is good is of and reflective of God. What is wrong, what is sinful, would be the term that Scripture uses, is that which is not of God, which has fallen short of who He is, which is actively, since it's not of Him, it is actively opposed to Him. And so the basis for our understanding as believers of, of what is right and what is wrong, it is absolute because God is absolute. God is the same God for all people in all places at all time. He doesn't change in different seasons. He's always been who he is and he always will be who he is. And even that's somewhat of a tricky statement because technically God created time, which is why he does not reveal himself as I was or I will be, but simply I am. And because he is absolute, truth is absolute. It's objective. It's not subjective. It's not relative. It doesn't matter if you and I think something is true. We can speculate all day long about, pick a conspiracy theory. We can speculate all day long about the assassination of JFK. The reality is it doesn't matter what any one of our opinions are. Only what is true is what happened. Because truth is objective. Truth is absolute. It's true for all people in all times and all places. The laws of gravity are not somehow more so here in Texas than elsewhere. The only thing that might not be absolute is the weather patterns of Texas. That might not be absolute. Everything else in all of creation is absolute truth. And off of that then builds our our understanding of ethics. Ethics are absolute. There's absolute objective right or wrong. We understand that God reveals. How does God reveal what's right or wrong? Well, he reveals himself. He reveals himself generally through creation. He reveals himself specifically through Jesus and recorded in the word. And the ultimate problem of, 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 of the world then, of right or wrong, the reason there is wrong, we understand as believers, is because of sin. And when you pull all of this back, where we ended last week is, well, what is the heart of Christian ethics? And the heart of Christian ethics is to love, is to know God truly, to have a real authentic relationship by grace through faith with Jesus. That's the, pre, uh, the prerequisite. And in that relationship, as one who is loved perfectly by him, as one who is fully known by him, we love him and know him. We know him truly. We, love, we seek to love him completely so that we follow him faithfully. That the basis for Christian ethics is not out of duty, I serve God. It's out of love, I follow him. And it's not out of my love for him, It's out of the fact that he first loved me, which is why I am able to love. And it's only possible inside of a relationship with him. And so on that note, here's where I want to provide a couple clarifications that as I thought through last week, I thought, ah, here's a couple spots that maybe some rabbit trails I didn't bring back that I want to clarify. And then we're going to push further into practically applying what does all this mean in terms of when we make decisions? How do we do 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 that? And so a couple clarifying. When we say that the sum total of biblical ethics is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And remember, remember the passage, Deuteronomy chapter six. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's the one true God. What's, what's the commandment right after that, that Jesus then said in, in the New Testament is the greatest, the foremost of all the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How will we obey his commandments if we love him? Why will we obey his commandments if we love him? What does love look like fleshed out? And this is the key to clarify. We've got to make sure we have a clear definition of love because we can easily, if you go, oh, Christian ethics is all about loving God. Well, what does that mean? Is loving God just mean that I have a positive feeling of affirmation about Jesus? I like that Jesus guy. I love him. Now, my life doesn't look anything like him, but I like that Jesus guy. That's not love. Now, that, honestly, that is somewhat how the world operates. I mean, think about how we use the word love. I love my wife. I love chocolate. Chocolate and my wife are not comparable. I love my daughter. I love baseball. My daughter and baseball are not comparable, but we use the same word, which is, praise God, why Jesus didn't come today and force the Bible to be written in the original language of English, but in a language that had four words for love, the foremost of which is agape. What, what, what is agape love? Agape love is God and His goodness looking and valuing another. It is the goodness of the lover giving value to the beloved and the very definition. Think about how, how Scripture shows the love of God with me. For God so loved the world. And that so right there means in this way, this is how God showed his love for the world that he sent. John 3, 16. 1 John 4, 9 and, and 4, 10. In this, the love of God is revealed, is made known that he gave God's love is the giving of himself. It is him taking action to give of his goodness for the good of others. And remember, God's the standard of goodness, so God giving of his goodness for the good of others is God giving of his goodness for his good for others. So it's not for our good as in our pleasure or our happiness or what we think is good. It's for what he knows is good his will, his purposes, his plan for us as human beings, for our lives. Love is an action, which means when we say that the heart of Christian ethics is to love God, it means we have to embrace him for who he is, not who we think or fear he is. It means we have to embrace him for how he is, not how we want him to be or don't want him to be. We have to embrace him for who he is and how he is at what he says and not what we say about him or culture says about him or how we want to misinterpret what he says about him. It's going to mean seeking his goodness. It means if I'm driven to love him, I want his goodness. It's going to mean honoring his holiness. It's going to mean having a desire to please him rather than to grieve him. It's just why the aim of loving him is not that the aim is not that we would feel positive, happy emotions about God. It's that we would honor his goodness and bring him pleasure, not bring him pleasure because we're trying to earn his favor. We've already got all his favor. 
So there's a freedom and a joy to bring pleasure because you're not worrying about whether or not at the end of the day you're going to measure up. We measure up because we're in Jesus and Jesus measured up. Even when we fell short. Also means that the heart of God's ethic is our good. So when we think about right or wrong, what, God, what the Bible says is right versus what the Bible says is wrong. Take, for instance, with me, uh, you can turn there or you cannot. It's okay. It's spontaneous on the moment. You can just write it down. But think about a place like Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 makes this statement. It says uh, that you should lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then implying this to specific things, Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, and I'm gonna just kind of hit, uh, I'm gonna skim here. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Be angry, do not sin. Uh, he who steals must steal no longer. He who labors, do it with his own hands. Uh, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Immorality, chapter 5, verse 3. Impurity or greed should never be named among you. No filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. No dirty joking. Okay, so right there, I've just rattled off a list from Scripture of probably about 15, 16, that's probably more than that, 20, 25 different things some of which God says are wrong, don't do them. Some of which God says are right, do them. It means when we see that list, if the drive of Christian ethics is love, then the reason that I, I, I how am I gonna go about that? Well, by putting my focus on loving him. Why am I gonna go about it? Not because it's a drudge and a duty, a, a duty but because God loves me and I'm gonna love him. But, but in all of this, when God gives this list, here's what we need to understand. It's good. It is good that we not speak falsehood to each other. It's good that I don't tell white lies to you and you back to me. It's good that we don't heap false flattery at each other. It's good, and by flattery, I mean that we don't try to suck up to each other. It's good that we speak truth to each other. We speak truth to say you're a blessing to me because you're actually a blessing to me. We speak truth to one another to say, hey, I think you might have been out of line. We speak truth. It's good. It's good. It means it may be hard for me to let go of things I'm angry about that I, that I don't have. But there are some things to be righteously angry about, and there's a way to deal with that in the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things we're just angry about. It may not um, emotionally please me to let go of that, but understand the heart of Christian ethics says me letting go of that, it's good. It's for my good. It means when we say no to sin, and listen, for all of us in this room, every one of us, there are, to every one of us, there are things to us that are sin that we're like, I just don't understand why anybody would do that sin. That's just weird. And there's things to us that it's like, wow, that's, that's where I'm really weak and tempted by sin. And the reality is all of us are different. So what falls in these categories for me may be totally different for you. Why? Because you're not me and I'm not you and God and saw fit to make it that way. 
It means you're going to see different things at different times. There's going to be sins that, that um, are easier for me to let go of. And there's going to be sin that really costs me a lot to let go of. There's certain kinds of sexual morality that are tempting for you in this room. There's certain kinds that aren't. There's certain kinds that are in vogue in our society right now that may or may not be tempting. Here's the reality. When God calls you as a believer to lay down and no longer walk in sexual morality, there's, there's potentially, depending on what you're walking in, going to be some major sacrifices that are going to alter your life to do that. And if we only teach following what's right or wrong as a duty, you're going to feel a drudgery on top of the normal hardness of that being pulled out and uprooted from the garden of your life. But if the focus is on love and we understand that in doing this, it doesn't matter how hard it is to let go of this. My loving Father knows this is good. And on the other end, somewhere down this road of hardship, there will be goodness in this being weeded out of my body. It changes how we, under, it changes how we communicate about God's path of holiness versus sin to our kids, teaching them right or wrong, to our grandkids, to our society. We've got to walk a fine line of, yes, sin is rebellion against God. But can we also tell you, sin's not just rebellious against God, but God's got goodness He wants for you. You're going from partner to partner to partner to partner trying to find community and value and identity and validation. Can I tell you, yes, that's wrong, woman at the well. But let me also tell you, in Jesus, there's something good that can heal all that and fix all that. And we've got to make sure that we don't only focus on the negative and miss that at the heart of Christian Exodus. It's not, just some, it's not a message about what's negative. It's a message about the positive, that God is good and I can be transformed and made good, that I can know goodness, that I can be old. That's the, the, um, uh, the, the full context behind the Old Testament term shalom. It's not just peace as in absent from conflict, but it's, it's harmony, wholeness, soundness. Can you imagine if more people in our society knew the shalom of, of heart, how that would transform our culture? Anyways, we can't stay on that point. Oh, well, let me do say this. Let me just a couple questions. To, do we present God's way as good, pure, and desirable, or do we speak about following God as a grind or a burden? And listen, all of us fall into the trap sometimes of talking about it. It's just, it's such a burden to follow the Lord. We need to rethink that. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and burden is light. That didn't say there wouldn't be painful moments. Listen, running wind sprints after football practice was never fun. But it was our coaches loving us through discipline to prepare us for winning a football game, which was a lot of fun. Are we more frustrated by the threat to our peace and tranquility that sinners and, and, and sin pose today in our world? Or are we more broken by the fact that every one of those people you see chasing and, and mobbing and rioting after whatever sin they want, they are, they are every day feeding on a cancerous death that they will have to bear, not only the experience of that death from, but a just punishment for. If there's no brokenness, we need to examine our hearts. I'm not saying there can't be, there's a place for righteous anger, but there's also a place to authentically as a believer get up on the cross as you're being crucified and look down at the very people slaughtering you and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
are we broken for the world? It comes with God's goodness. Not only this, but we need to teach others, and I mentioned this last week, but I want to re-hit it before we move on. We need to teach others to know Jesus truly. That's the first step. Then the focus needs to be loving Jesus fully, which leads to following Jesus faithfully. And sometimes we can invert those. Hey, you need to follow Jesus faithfully. And along the way, we'll try to convince you to love him fully. And, and then maybe we'll figure out, oh, do you even really know him? Someone, listen, no one can know the goodness of God and love God if they're lost. Not in the way that we're talking about when it comes to Christ, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't, because that love is God's love. And a lost person doesn't have God's love being poured out and born into their life by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit of God's not living in a lost person. So, so you've got to be saved to truly be transformed by the Christian ethic, which is we've got to be clear on that as, as American believers, because while our nation was undoubtedly and undeniably infused with biblical moral principles, not every church that was involved in the founding of our nation preached the gospel, not the gospel that saves by grace through faith which means by default, even some of the past, when you go back and go, look how many more people went to church. Yes, but how many were actually saved? Because if you preach a gospel that says the reason you're saved is because you take the Lord's Supper and got sprinkled as, a, and as an infant, but you don't have to have faith in Christ, that's not a gospel that's going to save you. So my point is, we've got to be clear our aim in society is not to get people to follow the rules. Our aim in society with the lost is to help people come to know Jesus. And then once we know Jesus, our aim is to actually love him. Our aim, I, I've got to make sure that as we raise Jesse and baby dubs, so we don't know the gender, so therefore don't know the name. I, just, I call baby dubs baby dubs. That is we raise, and that's short for W. That's what the dubs is, W. Just clarify there. That was a nickname that was given along, not baby dubs, but dubs. That was a nickname and as a teenager. So I've got to make sure that what we teach them is not follow the rules, but is know and love Jesus. Because if you know and love Jesus, you will both be able to and desire to follow the rules. And that's sometimes where we can flip it. And, and listen, I am prone. All of us are wired different. In my life, I am prone towards that bent of legalism as a, as a child of God, where I can flip those. I gotta follow, gotta do it, gotta, and I can get so bent on the, the perfection and the rules internally with me that I, I need to stop and take a breath and go, wait a minute, Lord, let me just remember who you are. Let me bask for a second in the knowledge of your love, and now let me reset my mind to seek you out of love. Am I gonna have a quiet time today because I need to check the box of a quiet time, gotta get my duty on, gotta make sure God's proud of me, or am I gonna have a quiet time because I love Jesus? Now, you need to spend time alone either way. That's the real challenge. You still gotta do it. But what heart is driving it? When I think back to my childhood, one of the things I am so very grateful for, I saw in my parents... I mean, understand the craziness of this for a second with me. I am a fifth-generation pastor's kid. No, fourth-generation pastor's kid, fifth-generation pastor. 
And in our family, I know the stats of how many pastor's kids reject Jesus or for sure reject the church. They may embrace Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with the church. I think part of God's protection in my life and my sister's life and my wife's life, trying to pay a compliment to my parents and my in-laws and my grandparents because they were this way too. Jesus wasn't a duty in the house. He was a joy in our love. I watched my parents. They didn't, dad didn't, mom and dad didn't do ministry because that's what they had to do as a Christian. They did it because they loved Jesus. And they loved Jesus because Jesus loved them. There was this real transformation of love that when I look back and see, that's what marked our home. I watched my mom and dad love Jesus. We had conversations around the dinner table about Jesus. Why? Not because every family is supposed to have family devo- You want to know something crazy? My family never did family devotionals, ever. Some would go, well, that's heresy, Pastor. You can't raise God-fearing children without family devotionals. Listen, if God convicts you to have family devotionals, I'm not knocking it. My point is, making sure we check every box is not what's going to pass down the faith. Loving the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and seeking out of that to disciple our children and whoever else we're to disciple, that's the pattern God lays out for passing down the faith. So we've got to make sure in our hearts, and let me just bring, this, was, this is not plain and scripted, but I mean, it's never scripted. I have notes. I don't have a script. I can't do that, that unless it's a wedding. If you come see me do a wedding, that's a script. <laughs> Why? Because I don't want anybody being mad at me. We're going to end in 25 minutes. Um, <clears throat> I want you to think with me for just a second, and this is a true challenge to all of us. When you go to the book of Revelation, there are seven letters that I firmly believe were seven literal letters written to seven literal churches that we know were on a a mailing, a circular mailing route in modern-day Turkey, starting with Ephesus. That would have been the port. When you read those seven letters, five of the churches get rebuked, two of the churches get praised. Four of the churches that get rebuked have issues of immorality, idolatry, laziness, uselessness. But the first church that's written to, listen to what he says. To the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Now, I'm not going to go into, for sake of time, all the breakdown of all those words, but those words, when you dive into what they mean, he describes a church that has been loyal to maintain sound doctrine, they honor the scriptures. They preach the word, probably verse by verse, text by text. That's a little bit of a seminary joke. It's okay, that's a laugh. Uh, My brain's moving too fast from my mouth. Um, They're faithful to do ministry. They're discipling their people. 
Some of those words refer to the ministry of evangelism. They're out in the world evangelizing, sharing the gospel. Some of those words allude to the fact that they're facing real opposition. Those words say they are the church. They've heard the words from people like Jude and Paul. They put every teacher to the test. They are not putting up with heresy. They're examining it all. In every way, if you were to come to me and say, Pastor, God's moving us to this city. Do you know any churches? Based off that description, I'm telling you, go to this church. This is it. They're vibrant. They're alive. They preach the word. They're out there. They're doing ministry. They'll disciple you internally. They're out there seeking to proclaim the, the gospel to the lost in every way. Go to this church. Listen to what it says. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now that sounds strange to us, but context, right before that in chapter one, Jesus is walking in between seven lampstands and we're told that each one of those lampstands represents each one of these churches. When Jesus says, if you don't fix your love problem. I'm going to come and before me remove you as a church. They get the harshest critique of discipline of all seven churches. Yet if you and I were to walk into that church, we'd go, man, these people Look at how they love Jesus. They preach the word. We're singing the right songs. We're doing the right ministries. Listen to me, church family. That passage opens up a scary reality for us as a church and also for us as individual believers that you and I can do all the right things and not do it because we love Jesus. And Jesus takes that with the utmost of seriousness. So when we talk about that the heart of Christian ethics is love, I just ask all of us, would you join me as you seek before the Lord and just say, Lord, if there's, if there, if there's any lesser love in my life, please show me and I will, I will happily repent. And if as a church, if there's any way as a church, we don't, we've left our first love, oh Lord, let it return. Because we want to let, and remember, by love, we don't mean we want to feel positive about you. We want to honor your goodness. We want to honor your holiness. We want to desire to please your heart. We, we want to give ourselves away to you and for you. This is at the heart to love him. And here's the other thing in here. Uh, if, if you've got your hand still there in Ephesians, flip over to Colossians with me. Here's the other reality of this. Just a reminder, Bible fact, when your Bible was written, it did not include the chapter and verse notations. Never forget that. They're helpful. I don't want them removed. Can you imagine how miserable that would be on a Sunday morning? Now, church family, please open to the book of Isaiah. <laughs> and uh, we we're just done. We're like the rest of the time is going to be trying to find the same spot. So the, the notations are helpful. 
where they can be distracting, especially, and, and all, no, nearly all our Bibles have them, when they put the, uh, like the paragraph summaries on top, it, 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 visually it makes our mind disassociate things. And I, and I, if Colossians 2 says, verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, which is rhetorical, he's already told them, you've died, you're in Christ, you've died. Why do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all which refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Here's what he says. Why are you as believers going back to, hey, this is sin, so don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. All those things you're coming up with, they seem really wise. And they'll certainly make you very disciplined with what you do with your body, but they will do nothing to fix the, 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 the sinful longing you have, the fleshly indulgence. They won't do anything. Now ignore the chapter and verse. Therefore, what do we always ask when you see a therefore? What's it there for? Therefore, in light of this fact, if you have been raised up with Christ, again, if we read the whole book in one sitting, rhetorical, because he's already said, you've been raised. If you're in Christ, you've been raised. So since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking refers to your will, to your love. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. Now here's what he says, like a light bulb. You want to know how to overcome temptation in your life and you want to know how to come face to face with that thing which is most tempting in your life and say, no. It's not going to be through checking all the boxes and following all the rules and putting up all the safeguard and parameters of fear in your life. It's going to be by having your heart and mind in tandem seeking to love Jesus. And I will never forget sitting down to counsel with a group of uh, teenage guys as a youth pastor. They were battling like nearly every uh, teenage guy. They were, they were battling with the problem with, with pornography. And I remember having a conversation with them. I remember sitting down and going, okay, well, you know, uh, do you have accountability in your life? Uh, what about filters for, for, your, com for, for your computer? You know, let, let, your, both of you have really godly dads. Do your dads know? Let's bring your dads into this. So you've got, there, there's something about having your, when you're living under your father and mother, like having their, you know, and, I didn't tell them anything that is wrong, unbiblical, or they shouldn't do. But here's what I realized several weeks later when I finally read that passage in that way. You and I's only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ, nothing else. If you want to sit at the table of God as a son or daughter, there's only one chair, Jesus not baptism, not church attendance, not family lineage, not go on down the line, whatever else you want to do. There's only one way to sit at the chair of, at the table, sit in the chair, sit, sit at the table of God, Jesus. And just like all of us in this room right now are exercising a type of faith, um, best I can tell, I can't tell, Mike's propped up on the deal, but I'm standing, I'm the only one whose body is exerting effort to fight the forces of gravity. Your bodies aren't doing that. Those chairs are doing that for you on behalf of your body. 
You did not walk in this room and examine your chair. I think I've said it before. You don't know if I unscrewed a couple screws and we're going to have a kind of prank go on. You just sat down. You You have placed, you have trusted the full weight of your body on the power and might of that chair to uphold you. Now, if that chair were not seen, if it were invisible, but you were told, if you want to sit at this table, you got to sit in this chair. You can't see it, but it's true. If you were to sit down in confidence in that chair, that's biblical faith. It's not, a, it's not the Indiana Jones blind leap. I hope there's a bridge under there. Not sure what's going to happen. It's walking up to that chasm in Indiana Jones, the third Indiana Jones, and not even looking. You just start walking across because it says there's a walk, you walk by faith, not by sight. Assurance of things hoped for. Here's what this tells me. If you want to be saved, you have to sit in Christ and Christ alone. Well, okay, I have been saved. Well, what are we talking about now? We're talking about that salvation working itself out in our lives. Do you want to know how to know the power of his salvation in our life? By learning how to sit really comfortably in the chair of Christ. But here's what we do oftentimes. Right now, if we were to move the tables and bring in ottomans and change your chairs, we'll make your chairs some really comfy chair that you can slink back in that you want to put your feet up on an ottoman. Is there anything bad about ottomans? No. In fact, what do ottomans do? They help you recline even more into that chair. They make it a really safe, pleasurable experience. You're going to have to exert even more effort to get out of that chair if an ottoman's present. But if you remove that ottoman, are you going to go crashing to the ground? But if you put that ottoman back and you remove the chair, your feet will be up in the air, but your rear end is going to be on the ground in pain. What do I mean by that here? The entire way that we can say a lot of times when it comes to temptation and sin, here's the sin I'm struggling with. Okay, here's the five steps you need to do to have victory. Listen, ottomans aren't wrong. But Ottomans don't deliver us from temptation and sin. They can be safeguards to help put some insulation and protect us. But if those boys who are struggling with porn go, you know what, all right, I've got some accountability. We're going to talk to each other every week and check in. I've got a filter on my computer that if I mess up an email goes out, my parents know, who, all right, I've got all these things in check. Now I've got, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm safe now. No. No because your faith is in the Ottoman. Vice versa, you can have not one of those things and respond to the conviction of Jesus and learn as a believer how to, by faith, in love, seek the things above to to actively take captive my thoughts to the things above. The things above mean the things of God, the things of heaven, the things of the Spirit, the things when it says where Jesus is seated, where his work is finished. 
in restoring me to a relationship with God where I can run into his throne room with boldness and confidence to find grace and mercy in time of need. Hebrews chapter four, context being that Jesus faced every temptation that we have yet didn't sin, so he knows how to perfectly give us the grace and mercy we need to face whatever the most tempting thing in the world is, to hear its cry and go, no. But the power is found by learning how to rest by faith in Christ the power to do right or wrong is going to be terms of what I'm saying. If you want to overcome sin, lesser affections are not overcome by more rules. Lesser affections are overcome by greater affection. Pursuits of this world are overcome, not by going, no, don't look at it, close my eyes. Instead of looking at this and going, wow, this is sin, don't look at it. Instead, look at the cross and look at something greater and pursue it and leave it behind. that all flows out of the reality that at the heart of Christian ethics is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And there will be moments that we mess up in our love and we succumb to sin and temptation. And there will be, it's not all of a sudden, oh yeah, pastor, I'm leaving tonight and I'm gonna love Jesus with everything. And yes, I hope all of us leave tonight and do that. And whenever we trip and mess up, we remember Oh man, my love may fail, but his never does. And so I get back up. I say, sorry, Lord, for getting distracted by the ground. I'm looking back at you. I'm getting comfortable back in the seat because I'm not gonna ever lose my seat. I'm in you permanently. You love me and I'm gonna, love, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna bask in that and love back. This is why it's critical. Our ability to love God is rooted in understanding that he really loves us. And you've heard me mention it before. We love, we love why? Because he first loved us. What does it say when, when Paul prays, the thing we all love to pray when we're praying for God to do something big? Now to him who's able to do exceedingly above and beyond all we ask or imagine, what's right before that? Paul says, I bow my knee. I pray before the father of every family on earth that God would strengthen you in your inner person and give you the strength not just you individually, but you corporately, to understand together, to try and comprehend what is the height, depth, breadth, and width, the love of God for you as an individual, for you as a congregation that is in Christ Jesus, whom you're seated in by grace through faith. And then he says this, that you would be filled with the fullness of Christ. You want to live a life filled with the fullness of Christ? It's going to come from really understanding how greatly he loves us. Because it's in our understanding and in our receiving his love that we love him in return. Now, I got eight minutes, so I'm glad I clarified the follow-up issues from last week, and we've got eight more pages. I really was pretty sure we weren't going to get through it all tonight, which is why I said we got a hard stop. So on that, here's, here's so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set us up for next week, and then we, we will stop. Here's where we're going to go with this from next week. If this is the heart of the biblical worldview of ethics, then what are we, com what, what are we contending against in our world? To use the phrase we've seen in Jude, we're contending for the one true faith, what are we contending against? What do the other worldviews say about ethics, about how, how, we, how we as people know right from wrong and, and, and how we choose right from wrong and what things are right and wrong? 
what do they say? What, what are the human attempts to explain this? We need to understand what they're saying so that we see where we're prone to do things that way. I mean, that's part of what we're trying to do with biblical worldview is go, here's what Scripture says. Are there any holes in my worldview? I mean, let me just give you some stats that are by no means, uh, by no means, there could be so much more. Secular humanism. 20% of all practicing Christians believe meaning and purpose come not from who you're created by and created for, but from working hard and earning as much money as possible to make the most out of life. 20% of practicing Christians, one-fifth. By the way, it's triple, three times more likely to be millennials and Gen Xers. That's the parents of every college student, teenager, child, and baby right now. 29%, almost one-third of all practicing Christians hold at least one from this survey. And I'm not giving you all the background. I have done it before. You can go back to over a year ago and listen to it. At least one, almost one-third of all Christians hold at least one. And by practicing, we mean people who think they're saved by grace through faith and are active trying to live out their faith. They hold at least one humanist worldview standard. When you come to Marxism, 36% of practicing Christians embrace at least one Marxist view. Millennials and Gen Xers are four to six times more likely than the older generations to believe that private property ownership encourages greed. Only one in six Christians think that if the government were to be involved less in daily life, this would fix many of the economic problems. Only one in six, means five in six thinks more government need is necessary to fix the problem. Postmodernism, that belief which critiques modernism, that belief which says that there is no way to know absolute and objective truth, it doesn't really exist, truth is subjective, it's relative. 54% of practicing Christians embrace a postmodern view. 19% of Christians strongly agree that you cannot know for certain what purpose and meaning for life is. Almost a quarter of practicing Christians agree that what is right or wrong depends upon an individual's personal beliefs, not an absolute standard. What about when we come to New Age spirituality? Here's what's crazy. You think I've given you the worst of all of it because most new age spirituality, most people aren't caught up in that. Those are wackos. 61% of practicing Christians hold new spirituality, new age views. 28% of practicing Christians strongly agree that people all pray to the same God regardless of who they pray to. That's almost a third. A third of all practicing Christians believe that karma is real. And karma, as we'll see next week, is a key ethical philosophy. We've got to know what we're content. We've got to know what's true. We spent two weeks talking about what's true. Why? Because you need to know what's true so that we can look at what we're contending against and spot the problems. To spot the problems, because here is the reality. This is also where we're going, so just realize that anything new on the new cheat sheet this week I, got, I gave you, we didn't cover anything on the backside. We'll do that next week. 
We live in a world where when it comes to decisions of right or wrong, we've got competing worldviews that are trying to alter how we determine right or wrong, that are trying to tell us there is no right or wrong, or what you think is right is wrong, and what you think is wrong is right. On down the line, we live in a real world where there is a battle over truth, And truth is what produces and tells us what is right or wrong. Not only that, but we live in a world where you and I as believers who understand that God is the basis of all right or wrong, that He is good, that we are called to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we live in a world where we will face, we live in a real world, not a hypothetical world. And in the real world, you are at times, we are at times going to be faced with situations where it seems like where it seems like there's no win where it seems like there is a contradiction we're going to be faced with situations where we as Christians say lying is wrong we already saw that don't speak falsehood to each other And then there's going to be a knock at the door. We're in your neighborhood going to door to door. We're looking for any Jews who've resisted being rounded up. Do you have any in your house? You've got four, family of four in the basement. If you tell the truth, it's off to the death camp. If you lie, they may pass you over and keep going. What do you do? Because that's the real world we live in. So how do we as believers in seeking to put into practice loving the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength navigate the real decisions every day we're faced in? That's what we're going to look at next week. I got done a minute early. I told you I'd be done at five till. It's six till. Let me pray us out, church family. Uh, and appreciate you being here. Excited to jump into uh, Daniel chapter 2 on Sunday. I want to see a crazy dream and, uh, and how the Lord uses Daniel to respond. I appreciate you. May we continue to be prayerful. Appreciate all of you who are 24-7 prayer warriors. Um, may, we, may, we, may we keep our eyes on him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the joy it is to gather. Thank you for the joy that it is. You have given us such clarity in your word. And Jesus, I simply do ask that you would find us faithful but you would find us faithful in the way you define faithfulness, which is driven by a true, pure, first-hearted love for you. And Father, may that be the legacy of our lives, and may that be the legacy of this church, that whether we are accepted and loved or whether we are hated, that no one could deny that we really, truly love you fully. And God, whatever we would hold on to, whatever sin, whatever expectations, whatever pride, whatever self-centeredness, anything from desire to change to holding on to tradition, anything that's not of you, anything that's not just not of you, but not you, that causes 
a falling in our love for you. Whether that be in our life as a church, whether that be in our life, my life as your son. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see it that we might repent and that we might walk in a first love with you. Jesus, thank you for the joy of letting us be here tonight. Thank you for the privilege of getting to be a part of this church family. It is such a joy to, um, to worship you and to seek you, to follow you with brothers and sisters who love you. Thank you for that. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.